Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 today, and... We've spent, we've spent quite a bit of time here in Acts chapter 2, and we've got really uh, quite a bit of time left to spend in this chapter. And the, the reason for that is that much of the church today places, places great emphasis on the things going on here. Now you can see this is, these are some important events that are taking place here. But I hope you see as we, as we come down through uh, Acts 2, as we've looked at some of these things already, um, that... What's going on in Acts chapter 2 is not the, it's not the beginning of the dispensation of grace. It's not the beginning of what some would call the, the church age. Um, rather, what we saw in our, in our last lesson, which was three weeks ago now, um, what we saw is that, that Peter associated these events with what Joel said was going to happen at the end. Right, And so what you see here in Acts chapter 2 is you, you see there is a beginning, but in a sense it's the beginning of the end for Israel. Now, you say, well, if it's the beginning of the end, why are, you know, here we are 2,000 years later, and uh, we haven't seen, uh, for instance, you know, Peter, Peter quoted there from Joel 2, and about the, the sun being dark, the moon being turned into blood, uh, you know, he... he uh, associated that with these events taking place here. Why haven't we seen those things happen? And that's because as we move farther into the book of Acts, we're going to see where God puts a, a hold on the continuation of those events in order to do what he's doing today in the dispensation of the grace of God. And so, you know, we want to look for those kinds of things as we go down through this passage. Now, uh, we're going to pick up in verse 22 you know, there's very few whole sermons recorded in Scripture. This is a place where you have a whole sermon of the Apostle Peter recorded in Scripture. The first thing Peter did, and this is what we looked at in the last message, was he associated this with the prophecy of Joel in Joel chapter 2, which was a prophecy about the coming day of the Lord and how uh, there was going to be this this uh, pouring out of the Spirit. And if you were back there on the day of Pentecost and you hear Peter preaching this, the intent was for you to understand the day of the Lord is near. And when he says in verse 21 that it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, that is a, a, a message for those, you know, really that are, are going through that time who are going to begin to see these trials on the earth, who are going to see these these miraculous wonders in heaven and, you know, just these terrible things taking place. It's an admonition for them to call on the name of the Lord and be saved out of that, out of that tribulation. As he describes here the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord, uh, one of the terms that's, that's applied to it and, and to that tribulation period is it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It is, it is not just a time of judgment on the world, but it's a time, it really focuses on Israel, okay? And, and it's a, it's a time of purging for Israel. And so as Peter is telling them about the, the near approach of that day of the Lord, 
uh, he's also going to tell them why they have come to deserve this judgment that's coming on them. All right? And so in verse 22, he says, Ye men of Israel. Now notice the focus here is not Gentiles. There's going to be some things that Peter says here that would have no, no real application to Gentiles. All right? He's speaking to Israel. He's not speaking to, uh, he's not speaking to the, uh, a people where that distinction between Jew and Gentile has been done away. He's not speaking to the Gentiles. He's speaking to Israel. Right? He's here on a Jewish feast day in Jerusalem where Jews are gathered. The only, the only Gentiles, you know, that it would mention here, it didn't mention previously that there were proselytes there, which would be Gentiles that had converted to Judaism. So when I say Jews here, I'm not speaking just Jews by birth, but it's all Jews either, either by birth or by, uh, conversion. And you see, he addresses himself to the men of Israel. Now, these, these Jewish people, again, they had scattered all over the earth. They were from all these other nations, but they're still the men of Israel. Okay, so he's not excluding all of those people that we saw back in verses 9 and 10 and 11. Uh, they're still men of Israel. They may be living for the time being in some other country, but they're men of Israel. And he says, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Um, he talks about the, the miracles and the wonders and signs that Christ performed. And, you know, that was, that was always the evidence of the truth of Christ's message was the work that he performed. All right? Um, Christ, for instance, told told people, go to uh, go to John, chapter fourteen. Jesus Christ, by the way, when Jesus Christ was on the earth, he did not preach about himself. He preached about the Father. All right, he that's that's who he spoke of. But the the miracles and signs and wonders that he did, if somebody was believing the scriptures that they had, the Old Testament scriptures, they would be able to identify who Christ was. And many times he would tell his disciples and he would tell people that had been the recipients of those miracles, he would say, don't tell anybody who I am. There were many times where he specifically forbade his disciples from telling anybody that he was the Christ. Because he didn't want them to believe on the authority of some man that told them it was true. He wanted them to believe on the authority of the scriptures and be able to look at the, the signs and, and draw that conclusion. Uh, you know that, that uh, if, you come to a, if you come to a conclusion yourself, you'll hold that opinion much more strongly than if somebody just kind of convinces you of it. Um, you know, I mean, this is, this is something... I'm, I'm coming to learn when it comes to teaching the word of God is a lot of times just proving somebody wrong. First of all, you can, you can prove them wrong. Absolutely. And they can still go on believing what they want to believe. Right. Um, you can prove somebody wrong, but if they come to that own, that own conclusion, um, it's very hard to, to convince somebody different. Not only that, if you prove them wrong and they do agree with you, a lot of times that only lasts until the next person comes along with a good argument and then they go and do that. 
Okay? And, and Jesus Christ did the miracles that he did so there would be no question about who he was. It wasn't necessary to go out and convince everybody he was the Christ because he did everything that the Scripture said the Christ was going to do. And if they didn't believe he was the Christ, it wasn't because somebody hadn't come with a good argument. It was because they were rejecting the Scriptures. Uh, if you notice in John chapter 14, verse well, starting verse 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but my, by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. And verse 8, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Well, didn't Jesus just tell him, you've, just, you've seen the Father? He said, if, if you know me, right? He's, he said, if ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. From henceforth ye know him and have seen him. So he just told them, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father, and, and you've seen him, right? Because Jesus is one with the Father. In fact, the Father is called the invisible God. Um, you, can't, you can't go and look at God the Father. But when you're looking at Christ, you're looking at the Father, because he is the image of God. He is so joined with the Father that they are one. All right. So, so Christ has just told him that you've seen the Father, and, and Philip asks, he says, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. It'll be enough for us if you just show us the Father. Very similar to what, what Moses asked. Remember Moses when he wanted to see the glory of God and God had to, to hide him in the, in the cleft of the rock and then he got to see a glimpse of God's glory after he had passed by. Uh, but he couldn't, he couldn't look at the glory of God directly because as a sinner, he would, he, it would literally kill him. The experience would kill him. Uh, that's similar to what Philip is asking for here. But Christ here is not going to give Philip some miraculous display. What he says in verse 9, Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? You can almost hear, you can almost hear the disappointment in Christ's voice as you read that. Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know who I am? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, and how sayest thou then... Show us the Father. You see, Jesus Christ is not some created being. He's not some angel. He's not Michael the archangel. Jesus Christ is so one with the Father that he can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Verse, verse 10, he says, Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. You see, you see what he says? Believe for the work's sake. Um, if, if, if you can't believe for any other reason, you've got the works. He's doing the works of the Father. Believe for that reason. And, and that was a purpose of the works that Christ did. Now certainly, you know, Christ did things that he did, having compassion on individuals, but the larger purpose was as a testimony of who he was. Um, and, and they're written down for that purpose as well, by the way. John, uh, in another place, says that if everything Jesus had done were written down, he said all the books in the world couldn't contain it, but he says, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Every miracle you have recorded in your Bible is there for the express purpose of testifying to who Jesus is as the Christ, the Son of God. And you see, he points to the works there as something, he says, believe for the works sake. Believe because you've seen the miracles. If you, you, know, if you don't believe for any other reason, he says, 
believe for the work's sake. Um, not only that, he says, uh, verse, verse 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Now, that time that he's describing there, where they're going to do these greater works even than he did, is beginning where we're at in Acts chapter 2. These disciples, these apostles now, are going to go out and they're going to do all the same kinds of things that Christ did. Now in their case, they're not doing it, it, it doesn't testify the same thing about them as it testified about Christ. It doesn't say that they also are Christ, but what it says is that their testimony about Christ is true. And that's what these, these miraculous demonstrations are going to be about here in, in the book of Acts. Uh, let's go over back over to our text in Acts chapter 2. And uh, verse 22, so when Peter says that Jesus is a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, these weren't things that Israel was ignorant of. Okay, now maybe some of these people that are in Jerusalem at that day uh, hadn't you know, hadn't heard some of these things, but even that is doubtful. Uh, Jesus Christ, you can identify in the earthly ministry of Christ, you can identify at least three and possibly four separate Passovers, you know, four including the, the, uh, the one on which he died. You can identify these Passovers and these other feast days where he was there in Jerusalem doing miracles. Now, these people that are here this year were, were probably there for other feast days in previous years and had probably also heard of this man of Jesus of Nazareth, if not, if, if they hadn't, you know, directly encountered one of the miracles that he had done. And you see, all those things testified of who he was. Who he was was not something that Israel could be ignorant about. They couldn't just claim ignorance and say, we didn't know, because he did everything that the scripture said the Messiah would do. Right? He's a man approved of God among them. Not just approved of God off in heaven somewhere, but approved of God right among them by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you. And he says, as ye yourselves also know. They can't claim ignorance. He says to these men of Israel, you know the things he did among you. Uh, those Pharisees that wanted to have him put to death, they couldn't deny the miracles that he did. Right? They couldn't claim ignorance of the fact that he, that he had all of the signs of being the Messiah. They couldn't claim ignorance of that fact. Uh, it was something that was done right among them. And, and he says, as ye yourselves also know. Now verse 23, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Here is Peter's condemnation on Israel as to why they are meriting this day of the Lord, this time of Jacob's trouble, this time of, of purging and judgment and tribulation. Now, he says that Christ was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Now, first of all, the determinate counsel. There's, there's uh, the, the Greek words that are used there. The word determinate is the Greek word orizo. And it's actually, we get our, our English word horizon from that. What it means is it means to mark out a boundary. And, you know, when you, when you look out at the horizon, um, we were down in, in Florida and our room looked out, not directly on the ocean, but you could see the ocean from our room. And, and you look out there as far as you can see, and there's a point where you can't see anymore. It's because of the, the curvature of the earth. And that's the horizon, and there's a boundary marked out there. 
Um, I, think, I think when you're standing on the ground, the, what you're actually seeing on the horizon is something like about eight miles away, something like that. You know, if you get up at elevation, you can see farther. But uh, uh, there's, a, there's a boundary there. And when it talks here about the determinate counsel of God, God had marked out a boundary. He had marked out some things that were going to happen. Uh, the, the word, the word counsel there is the word from which we get our English word volition. Um, you know, when, when you have volition, it means you have a will toward a, a certain thing. And God had marked out the boundary of His volition, the boundary of His will, having to do here with, with the death of Christ. Now, they crucified Christ, but it wasn't, it wasn't a surprise to God that they crucified Him. In fact, He had marked that out as the boundary. He had set that as His determinate counsel that it was going to take place. Now, it also says, and foreknowledge. Um, the, the Greek word there is the word, in Greek you would say it, prognosis or prognosis. Uh, we would say prognosis. When, when you go to the doctor and, you know, there's something wrong with you and the doctor says, this is the prognosis. The doctor is telling you, in, in the doctor's case, he's telling you based on his experience with that particular ailment, what you can expect to happen. But prognosis literally means foreknowledge. Now, that doctor has a very limited foreknowledge. In fact, often the doctors will say, um, you know, this is what's going to happen and something else might happen. You might, you might wind up better off, you might wind up worse off. Right? But, but God isn't like that. God's not making an educated guess uh, when it comes to foreknowledge. If God says what the prognosis is, that's, that's absolute. Right? And so, so the, this crucifixion of Christ, not only did it not take God by surprise, not only did he foreknow it was going to happen, but he had determined in his own counsel, in his own volition, that it was going to happen. Now you notice that those are treated as two separate things. You have the determinate counsel of God, the things God has determined that, that will happen, and his foreknowledge, the things he knows is going to happen. Uh, the fact that God has absolute foreknowledge, which is, which is true biblically, does not mean that God, that everything that happens is directly caused by God, right? When a, when a person goes out and murders someone, God did not cause that person to murder. That was, that was, you know, their sinful determinate counsel, you could say. Um, that was their choice to rebel against God. Now, God foreknew it was going to take place. He didn't cause it to take place. All right? And, and uh, those are those two separate things, determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God and the crucifixion of Christ was according to both. God didn't just foreknow it. He didn't just foresee it was going to t- take place, on, you know, unlike other things that happened. This specific event, he didn't just see it was going to take place. He determined that it was going to take place. Now, notice that none of that removes Israel's guilt for what they did. It was Yes, it was according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, but notice it says, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. There is no room here for, for Israel to say, well, since it was all the plan of God, then we were just Working the plan of God, right? Uh, people use that kind of kind of argument. I I remember one time uh, when I used to go over to to La Crosse to teach a Bible study over there. There was one week where we were meeting uh, in a in a park, and there were a couple of homeless men there that asked if they could come over and, and join the Bible study. And uh, be, before long, um, you know, one of them was arguing that uh, he God had made him to be an alcoholic. 
And since that was what God had made him to be, that was all he could ever be. And, and so, you know, he was just going to be what God had made him to be, right? What he was doing was he was taking the, the responsibility for his own sinfulness and he was placing it upon God. And in essence, what he was doing is he was calling God the, the author of his sin. Uh, he, was, he was blaming God for that. Um, that's not the kind of thing you see here. Peter, Peter doesn't say, you Israel, this is all you could have done, and, and so uh, you were just doing God's will. Peter doesn't stand before Israel and say, don't worry about it, you did the right thing because it was a determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. No, he says, you took your wicked hands, and you took Christ, and you killed him. You crucified him, and you, and you slayed him. But he doesn't end there. And of course, we know the story doesn't end there. He says in verse 24, whom God hath raised up. They, they were not going to thwart the plan of God through their wickedness. Remember the parable that Christ told about how, how there was, a, you know, there was a, a householder that had let out his land and he kept coming to get the, to get the, the rent, basically. And Everybody he would send, they would beat them, they would stone them. And finally, finally he says, I'll send my son because they'll reverence my son. And do you remember what those, those wicked men did? They said, we'll kill his son so that we can seize on the inheritance. We'll kill his son, he won't have anybody to leave the land to, and then we'll make a claim for the land and we won't be renters anymore, we'll, we'll own the land, right? That's what Israel tried to do with Christ. They, they killed him uh, in order to take this inheritance and, and try and make it their own. But here Peter says, it didn't work. He's not dead. You didn't thwart the plan of God through your wickedness. God has raised him up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. How could the one who is the way, the truth, and the life be holden of death? How could the one who you know, calls himself the life how could he be holding of death? It wasn't possible that death could hold him. And it says there that God raised him up. It said that he loosed the pains of death. You know, that's interesting wording there. It doesn't just say he loosed the bonds of death or that he loosed death. Well, you know, to say it that way would be true. But it says he loosed the pains of death. That's the, the travail, the sorrow of death. Now, certainly he's talking here about, about Christ's resurrection specifically, but realize that Christ loosed the pains of death, not just for himself, but for all those who believe in him as well. The, the pains of death are something that don't... It's not talking about the physical pain, you realize. It's not talking about the physical pain that precedes death, but it's talking about the sorrow that, uh, that accompanies death. And really, for the believer in Christ, there's no such thing. Because we understand that through Christ's resurrection, we have the hope of resurrection as well. He, he didn't just loose death. He didn't just loose the bonds of death, but he loosed the pains of death, that sorrow of death. Christ loosed it because it says that it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Peter is pronouncing a condemnation upon Israel, saying, you men of Israel, if you notice the, the pronouns there, he's addressing ye men of Israel. And so everywhere where you see ye or you, it's talking about Israel, you men of Israel. Um, he, when he says that, that ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, he's pronouncing a condemnation upon them as a nation for how they treated the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you men of Israel, you've taken him and slain him. Now, 
if you're standing there as, a, as an unbelieving Israelite, um, you can't deny what Peter's saying here. You know what Christ had done. You know the works that he had done that testified to who he was. Uh, you know about his death. And realize the resurrection is no, no news to them here at this point either. Um, the, the resurrection, Christ was seen of, of hundreds of people at once. Christ was around for 40 days, nearly a month and a half, um, after, his, after his resurrection. He's, you know, he's around there. People see him. Uh, it's not news to them that Christ rose from the dead. But think as you're standing here, when Peter says, you killed him, but he's not dead. In fact, he's going to say in a few verses, not only is he not dead, but God has given him a position at his right hand, and he's going to make his enemies his footstool. And Peter says, you killed him. You killed him, but he's not dead, and he's going to make his enemies his footstool. Peter hasn't gotten to any good news yet here in his message. He hasn't given them any good news. Even the resurrection here is not good news for those wicked Israelites that had put him to death. Now, he's going to get to the good news before he's done, and he's going to tell them how to be saved. But at this point, it's, there's nothing there for Israel but condemnation. He hasn't told him yet how to be delivered. He's kind of hinted at it in saying that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But he's saying, you guys are in big trouble. You messed up. You did this thing you shouldn't have done. And now there's something to pay for it. And that's where we're going to, that's where we're going to leave off for today. Um, in the following verses, Peter's going to apply, uh, you know, apply some more Old Testament prophecy to Christ, proving that his resurrection was in accord with the Old Testament scripture. But, um, uh, just, you know, sometimes when you, when you, look at a passage in detail like this and you split it up and take a few verses at a time, it can be easy to sort of lose the larger picture. And, and I would encourage you, I would encourage you during the week, a couple times this week, take all of chapter 2 and just, just read the whole thing all at once so that you get the big picture. And then as we, as we uh, look at it here on Sunday morning, we'll you know, just take a, a few verses at a time usually and sort of, sort of hone in on the details there. But uh, that's where we'll close for today. Uh, you know, what, what great praise we can have for that determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Paul, Peter doesn't talk here yet about atonement or what Christ's death accomplished or even really what his resurrection uh, accomplished as far as the believer. Peter doesn't get, get to that. He won't, he won't talk about that anywhere here uh, in this message. But certainly when, you know, when we read that, knowing the things that were revealed after this about the fullness of what was completed there in the cross and you see that determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God that God had determined that Jesus Christ would pay for the sins of the world that there would be salvation to all who believe. And before God ever created the world, he had those believers in mind and had this, this plan for how they would be how they would be uh, atoned for, how those sins would be atoned for, and how that free gift of eternal life would be offered. And if you haven't received that free gift of eternal life, um, if, you, if you're here today and, and you don't know where you would spend eternity if you were to die right now, or, or if you uh, somehow think that your salvation is based in your works and your abilities and, and you know, your religion and, and those kinds of things, realize the, the work that was accomplished at the cross is what satisfies God. There's no work of mine that can add in any way to that. In fact, what the scripture says is, to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith 
is counted for righteousness. And when it talks about believing on him that justifies the ungodly, it's not just sort of a a general belief that I believe God exists or that I trust God, but there's a specific thing that God calls on people to believe. And you find it in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, just in a very brief way, when it says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that according to the Scriptures doesn't just mean it was in fulfillment of prophecy. It means that it accomplished everything that the Scriptures say that it would accomplish, which is that he paid the complete price for sins. Now, if Christ made the the complete payment, if he's the propitiation, if he's the fully satisfying sacrifice, there's nothing I can add to that. All I can do is trust what God's Word says, what those Scriptures say about what his death and burial and resurrection accomplished. And if you're trusting in anything else this morning, uh, then you're not trusting the gospel. You're not trusting the good news. You're not believing what the scriptures say um, about eternal life and and about the free gift of it. And um, if you have questions about that, uh, talk to me, talk to some of the other men in the church. And there's no reason why you have to leave here today not knowing that you have eternal life. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.